This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Welcome to another episode of Lens Me Your Ears. This is a film podcast where we see films in cinema and we connect them with older films that you may or may not know about. Uh, my name is Karsten Knox. I'm a film writer and um, I write a blog called Flaw in the Iris. You can find it at halifaxbloggers.ca. My name is Stephen Cook. I'm an arts writer here in Halifax with the Chronicle Herald and elsewhere. And you can find me on Twitter at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. And on this, our final recording, our final episode of 2018, we are taking a somewhat somber tone to remember the works of some filmmakers who have recently passed, Bernardo Bertolucci, Nicholas Rogue, uh, Penny Marshall, and the screenwriter, William Goldman. The F-bombing New York Times bestsellers, Thug Kitchen. Gwyneth Paltrow's two-time co-author, Julia Tertian the polite and proper Great British Bake Off's food stylist. What do they all have in common? They're all at the intersection of culinary arts and pop culture. And they've all been guests on The Food Podcast, a Village Soundcast network production where personal stories are shared through the lens of food. If you really want to connect with someone, just write them a letter. It was a dark and stormy night. The only light came from a lantern swinging from the gatepost. A pathway to where? What's your pathway? What's in your brown paper bag? I think for me, it's more about a feeling, is that when I'm writing about food, I'm really writing about people. It was a springboard to learn about culture, history, and of course, health. As a story, I almost want there to be some internal conflict, even if it is just eggs or French toast. I am the architect of my own health. I decide what direction I go in. I build its foundation with every thought I think and with what I eat. Thanks for listening. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. Yeah, we weren't really sure what we were going to do for our last episode of the year. We're not big end-of-year recap folks. But uh, it, it was worth noting that four significant uh, filmmakers, uh, three directors and one screenwriter, all passed away within fairly quick succession uh, towards the end of 2018. In fact, Penny Marshall, uh, her, the news of her passing just came about uh, yesterday, the day before we recorded this podcast. So it's all still pretty fresh. And uh, it goes without saying for both of us that the, the work of William Goldman, uh, Bernardo Bertolucci, Nicholas Rogue, and Penny Marshall have all been enjoyed. Uh, by us over the years, and uh, they still have uh, a lot of works that we have yet to discover as well. So yeah, uh, yeah. I I definitely have a few holes <laughs> in the in the catalog for all of these filmmakers uh, that I'd like to see more of. And uh, yeah, we just you know looked at this and said, well, we've got to say something about this on our our show. Now I am actually kind of a recapper on my blog. I am definitely listing oh, my sure. favorite my favorite films of 2018. But in this uh, setting with you, Stephen, I'm quite happy to <laughs> reflect back on the uh, great work of filmmakers who have sadly passed. Um, I'm just not a big list fan. <laughs> let's, let's, let's leave it at that. Fair um, enough. BuzzFeed uh, you know, <laughs> won't be knocking down your door. No, no, not anytime soon. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's uh, amongst these filmmakers' work, I have seen a number of films and uh, and can speak uh, at least about those and, and certainly say that uh, that there are great works here, great films that uh, are deserving of being 
being remembered and uh, and you know I I, uh, I I still I look forward to the other ones I haven't yet seen uh, maybe some of which you've seen Stephen uh, that I'll I'll catch up with yeah this is this is probably going to be a fairly slapdash sunny kind of episode because there's some films that uh, that I've seen that Carson hasn't seen and vice versa and then the things that we've just kind of tried to catch up with or revisit in passing and 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 so on uh, and uh, I know that I was kind of doing a bit of a run through the old DVD library just to refresh my memory about some of these films I hadn't seen in a while. But um, but it's uh, it's good to revisit these films, and, and uh, most of the ones that I kind of jumped back into uh, briefly here and there, I kind of want to go back to and watch in in their entirety. For example, I think I made it through the first, like, 35 minutes of All the President's Men, uh, which I've seen a couple of times before. It's it's just a kind of a refresher, but now I just want to go back. It's it's so involving and it's so terrific uh, that I, I I just didn't want to press stop and, and hit the road to come into this podcast. But of course, we had the studio booked and uh, duty called. <laughs> yeah, so, and, and that that uh, that film I know we'll probably talk about when, and I know we've, we've talked about this as a possible uh uh, topic for 2019, which is uh, films about journalism, and that's really one of the great, great ones. Yeah, it it is kind of the shining beacon of uh, of that topic. Uh, you know, certainly uh, every film that comes out since then gets compared to it, and it seems to have superseded every film on the topic that came out before it. And I guess now that we're talking about William Goldman, maybe we'll just uh, continue to to hoe that row, um, since I guess in a lot of ways he's the most senior of the the four filmmakers that we're talking about here today in terms of the fact that his first uh, screenplay came out in uh, 65, I believe. And he had a pretty successful run right up until uh, just before his death. Uh, You were saying, uh, I think, Wild Card with Jason Statham was his most recent credit, although I think it may have just been based on one of his old novels slash screenplays for Heat with Burt Reynolds. Yeah, you know, it was definitely a connection there, but Heat was, I think, one of his novels, yeah, yes. and it was, and he, he wrote the screenplay for that, and I'm, I can't be sure, I'm not sure if he had a hand in the screenplay for Wild Card, but, but uh, it remains on my list of films of his to see. Uh, and I, when I looked at his list of films, there were a bunch there that I really do want to see. For instance, The Hot Rock, which is a heist movie with Robert Redford, if, directed by Peter Yates. Have you seen that? It's terrific. Oh, it, good. It is a lot of fun. I, I have seen The Hot Rock. It's one of those movies that uh, there's a lot of 70s movies with major stars in them that kind of fell by the wayside for one reason or another. Maybe because they didn't turn up on the ABC Sunday Night Movie or something like that in the pre-home video days. Or they just, uh, you know, they maybe they weren't as award-winning or critic- critically loved, as the case may be. But but The Hot Rock is a really fun heist film. It's got one of those great 70s casts with all kinds of familiar character actors in it. Of course, Robert Redford, uh, who is always watchable, is is the ostensible star of the film. But it is kind of an ensemble piece about a big jewelry heist. And, um, you know, y- Yates is a pretty good action suspense director. And, and it's a lot of fun. I haven't seen it in a long time. It does turn up on... Um, on TCM from time to time. So I have a feeling that next time it pops up, I'll probably uh, hit uh, record on the DVR, but, um, but definitely worth, uh, definitely worth visiting. Yeah. That he's, I mean, William Goldman's uh, filmography is just a list of, of remarkable and well-remembered films. I mean, Butch Cassidy's The Sundance Kid, I think, made his, his reputation uh, as a film writer. And then he went on to write, I guess, what is what many people consider kind of the Bible of screenwriting. Uh, and, and as a writer, you know, it's funny because if people think about William Goldman, this incredibly talented screenwriter, and the fact that he, he you know, he, he famously said, no one knows everything 
anything in Hollywood. <laughs> yes. And and yet he wrote a book about the things he did know. <laughs> um, but yeah, he, I mean, not all of his movies were hits. Not all of his movies were great. But uh, if you consider Papillon, The Stepford Wives, The Great Waldo Pepper, All the President's Men, Marathon Man, which is based on his novel, um, A Bridge Too Far, uh, the Princess Bride. I mean, The Princess Bride is beloved now, still. Uh, Misery, Chaplin, Maverick, uh, the Clint Eastwood picture, Absolute Power. You know, there's there are some solid uh, genre pictures in there. There are some great films as well. Yeah, I, I think, and, you know, he's not thought of as a genre screenwriter, but if you think about it, like, you know, the, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid kind of reinvented the Western, and it, not maybe not in the same way that Sergio Leone did, um, you know, or... or, or Heaven forbid, Kevin Costner with Dances with Wolves, but um, but you know he did kind of take the western and, and update it, make it seem more modern in a, in a way that um, uh, I don't think a lot of American filmmakers had up to that point. Um, I, I I think the first uh, his first big hit would have been Harper with um, Paul Newman, the d- detective movie from the mid '60s. Because uh, prior to that, he uh, there was a, a film called Baby the Rain Must Fall about his time in the army which uh, he didn't write. It was based on his book about, uh, about those experiences. But then he made a kind of a caper film called Masquerade that he wrote, which wasn't a huge hit, but, uh, and I haven't seen it, but it, I, I'm sure it's an interesting time capsule given the cast, Cliff Robertson and people like that. But then Harper came next, and that was, that was the film that got, uh, at least in the industry, got him inter- interested in him because he, he basically reinvented the detective story. He, he took it out of the film noir trappings, and uh, and kind of made Harper this kind of cool '60s style private eye, you know, played by Paul Newman. You couldn't have a hotter male star at that time. And uh, so, you know, Newman is very cool and very sexy, and uh, and it was a very kind of of its time kind of film that is still highly entertaining. It, it's it's still a '60s film, and it has that kind of style. But before the film, films got all hippy dippy and kind of you know, stylistically kind of out to lunch in that late 60s style. It's got that kind of cool, reserved uh, kind of feel about it that's that's very much just the, just before the psychedelic period. And and uh, and he would return to play her, uh, the same character in the 70s, but to, uh, I think, The Drowning Pool is the name of the film. Um, but it didn't have quite the same snap, crackle, and pop that uh, that uh, Goldman brought to the script for Harper. Uh, so I, I, I definitely, if you haven't seen it, I definitely recommend checking out Harper. It's, it's you know, kind of the quintessential 60s private eye film uh, after after the end of the, the whole film noir period. All right. Very good. Well, thanks for that tip. <laughs> I, I actually, I looked at that and that one completely flew over my head. I didn't actually remember seeing that one at all or ever. I, yeah, I've got, it's it's a, another uh, black spot or blank spot on my on my knowledge of this guy's work. Well, and and it shows, I mean, you know, he took the genre very seriously as he does with, uh, you know, a bridge too far, and and so on, and and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Uh, apparently, he did like six years of research before coming up with that screenplay. And that, in fact, of course, Harper is based on a, a novel. The character is actually named Lou Archer in the uh, in the books, but uh, Newman decided to change it to Harper because he felt that uh, names with H's were luckier or something like that. Because <laughs> he'd been in Hondo and or, no uh, Ombre and HUD and. I guess he had good luck with H pictures. Oh, there you go. Um, but uh, but Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid was an original creation of uh, Goldman's. It wasn't based on a book or anything. It was based on his own research into these famous outlaws. And, um, you know, of course, he'd worked with Paul Newman before. Um, 
and then uh, you know along comes Robert Redford, who's uh, you know, and they, they just have this perfect chemistry uh, as those two guys, and of course, which they would of course report or repeat in the Sting. And then uh, pretty much never worked together again, as, as far as I can remember. That's surprising, isn't it, that they never did? I know that they remained friends, but... Oh, yeah, uh, big time. But uh, Newman, uh, well, he died many years ago. But I know at, at one point they were planning to work together again in that picture that uh, yes. Redford did with uh, Nick Nolte, um, the uh, walk in the woods. Uh, and that that was sort of mooted for them. But I guess it obviously Newman passed away, so it, it didn't happen. Yeah, um, I think I think Newman's health in his later years prevented him from doing something that required so much location shooting. And then uh, I think Redford just shelved it after he died and then resurrected it, uh, you know, when when he, he felt it was a project that still needed to be made. And Nolte was a great pick for it, even yeah. even though it wouldn't, Newman would have been great, but, uh, you know, it would have been impossible to do it with him at that time. Right, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, my memory of Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid is that it's, it's funny, it's... Um it is considered a classic, but it's because it's so warm. It's a it's a film that the the performers bring so much to, and the story it is it is it's like a it's it's like a sad comedy. Like it, yes. it's it's <laughs> it, it has that thing that uh, although I'm a little bit loath to compare it to the Wild Bunch, but it does have that like end of an era kind of quality to it, where these guys are getting older. There there's they don't want to keep doing this kind of work. And yet they kind of have to uh, because they're, that's what they've chosen. And they don't see a way out. And then, uh, you know, um, Butch comes up with this idea, oh, we'll go to Bolivia. And I <laughs> never forget that scene where they arrive by the train in Bolivia. And, uh, and you know, Sundance is not impressed. Maybe this is the garden part, this, you know, <laughs> spot of the country that people travel all over to get to. Um, and, uh, you know, Catherine Ross is so good. But it's actually, it's also an, kind of an interesting love triangle too it's like there's there's so much chemistry between all of the three uh, uh performers and uh and it has and then it has that sort of Burt Bacharach kind of soundtrack in it too it, it has a it has a charm that is both uh I think sort of universal but also very set in its time you know and when it was made uh I guess it was in 1969 was the yeah, I mean, the Burt Bacharach score was obviously a big part of his, its success. I mean, he, you couldn't have a hotter musician slash composer at that time. Of course, then he did, uh, you know, he also did Casino Royale, which we talked about a yeah. while back. Sure. And then uh, that terrible uh, musical version of Lost Horizon. Uh, so Burt Bacharach's luck in the movies hasn't been as great as his luck on the pop charts, but he's certainly a big name. And, and uh, you know, that the hit song Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head was obviously a big draw for people, you know, they heard the hit song and then that drew them into the movie. Unfortunately, it's what dates the movie terribly now in, in a lot of ways. So if you can get past that, because, um, uh, you know, some people just revile the movie based on that and the, the dumb bicycle ride scene or whatever. Yeah, but, but it's but, charming. You know, but it's charming and, it, yeah. you know, it, you can't just criticize a film because it's old because every film eventually gets old. You know, <laughs> That's so. right. Um, but, it, you know, it was the chemistry between those two stars as those two characters that really sold the film. And, you know, in a way that, you know, a lot of Westerns, you know, up to that time were usually concerned with whatever the, the plot was, you know, the big cattle drive or the revenge against whoever killed somebody's father or something like that. You know, that, that's kind of what drove Westerns in, in, in the, the classic era. And this film was not about that. It wasn't interested in those kind of... Uh, Western uh, cliches, and and that's what made it seem so fresh at the time, and that makes it what what's kind of fun. I mean, I think the dialogue maybe is anachronistically modern in some ways, um, but Goldman is such a master of it that he doesn't make it too 
over the top and modern. It would sound weird coming out of the mouths of somebody who's actually from the 1800s, I suppose, you know, because, the, you know, the, the, the acting style and the mannerisms of, of uh, Newman and, and Redford, you know, are, are, are pretty modern, even, you know, even, and that part hasn't really changed that much. But, uh, but that's kind of what he specialized at, was that kind of chemistry and the diet, the, like the appropriate kind of dialogue that just felt right coming out of the mouths of those characters. Uh, and we see that in all the president's men as well. It's uh, Redford and um, and Dustin Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, in a similar kind of relationship to Butch and Sundance. Uh, and uh, yeah, it is charming. I, I love stuff like you know when the Pinkertons are on their trail. It's like who are those guys? You know, when, <laughs> uh, you know it becomes kind of a running gag in the film. And and uh, it's yeah, just his his knack for finding those kind of not even catchphrases, but just you know being able to get to the point of, of an idea with just uh, the simplest uh, of, of language. For example, uh, another example of that would be All the President's Men. Um, you know, the fam- what's the famous line from that movie? Oh, jeez. You, <laughs> oh, you, you put me on the spot okay, here. Well, I'm trying uh, to remember. Uh, follow the Money. Oh, yes. Okay, deep, sure. Deep Throat, uh, Redford's first meeting with Deep Throat, and, and Deep Throat, you know, he asked to elaborate. He asked Deep Throat to elaborate. Deep Throat's just giving him the barest of clues as to right. what's going on with this Watergate break-in thing. And he just says, follow the money. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I didn't know until recently, uh, just uh, reading up on the, the film, that uh, that was Goldman's invention, that line. That was not... Even, wow. Even though he was basically just writing his screenplay out of the book that Woodward and Bernstein wrote about the experience... Um, he put that in there himself. That's uh-huh. not in. That wasn't something that anybody actually said. It's not in in the book. Um, but he was basically distilling something that somebody else said to one of the reporters. That was more about like you know the the, the financial interests at stake in this blah blah blah. You know, it was like a very long winded. Sure. And he just boiled that down to follow the money, <laughs> and that became <laughs> and that, the, that expression lives on. Uh, yeah, I mean, exactly. I've, I've heard that in my career as a as a journalist many times. People still use that. Um, yeah, no, that's great. Um, that's a, that's a great example. Uh, and you know, I know a lot of people are beloved of the Princess Bride. I recognize it's a really fun movie. I'm not one of the cult who loves that film, but at the same time, I, I, I do see how much fun it is and how it upended all the sort of, uh, fairy tale princess, uh, hero kind of tropes to create something which feels still very contemporary. Yeah. I haven't read the book. So I, you know, I just had the movie to go on and I, I always wonder like, what would this story be like in somebody else's hand? I mean, Rob Reiner directs it. He's from a comedic background. He has a very, um, individual sense of comedic, uh, strengths and timing and so on. And so I, you know, I, I get a lot of his feeling like it's Goldman screenplay, but I, you know, I, I can, when people like Billy Crystal and, and Wallace Shawn and so on, I, I can feel that being, you know, Rob Reiner's direction, you know, kind of de- declaring that the feel of, of, of those scenes. So I, I, I'd be interested to read a, his screenplay and B, I should read the book itself to see how much, of it is exaggerated for comedic effect by Reiner and how much of it is there on the page. And I have a feeling that the answer is probably somewhere in the middle. Cause I, you know, it is, you know, you know, it's essentially a, not a spoof, but a, a bit of a loving send up of these kind of romantic tales that, that kids used to read in, in their, you know, week, you know, their weekly annuals or whatever, you know, the, the kids books that would just be 
cranked out by the dozen with these kind of formulaic adventure slash fairy tales. And this one just takes all those elements and throws them together in a bag and kicks it down the hill. And <laughs> as bright as what comes out. And it, it, it's a terrific entertainment. It's, it, you know, it's, it's, it's so interesting that a guy who is used to dealing with such adult themes and, um, and subjects could come up with something that's, you know, one of the ultimate family movies that, you know, any people of any age can enjoy. It, it, that's, that's a rare talent right yeah. there. Um, I feel like this would be a great segue, uh, Rob Reiner. Uh, <laughs> Fair to, enough. To uh, Penny Marshall, who I guess they were married at one time. They I were. Think. They both came out of that 70s sitcom, uh, you know, world. Uh, Rob Reiner and All in the Family, Penny Marshall uh, in Laverne and Shirley as actors, and uh, both made their careers as filmmakers later. Um, Penny Marshall is someone I remember as a kid because I s- totally watched Laverne and Shirley and, uh, and have, uh, uh, you know, great memories of her physical timing. Uh, and really, really, yeah, got a to- I didn't actually realize that she- it was a spinoff of Happy Days until yeah. much later. But, uh, but yeah, and then the fact that she became this really uh, well-respected filmmaker and the fact that her well, her film, film big was uh, made a hundred million in the box office. The first time that a female director had gotten that kind of uh, audience reaction, and uh, and it was, you know, and that that sort of made her career. And she made a lot of films that I don't think were necessarily as well regarded, but but big awakenings. Um, and uh, a league of their own, especially I yes. think people recall think with a lot of fun. Crowning achievement there, um, yeah. I mean, she she uh, obviously her brother was a director, so she had uh, some inspiration. Perhaps right. Gary Marshall. Gary Marshall, a very successful director who we lost a couple of years ago, I guess. Um, you know, a Pretty Woman is still kind of the ne plus ultra of latter day Hollywood romantic comedies. Um, yeah, it seems like every romantic comedy made since. When did that come out? In the 80s? Uh, 90, 90, 90, I think, yeah. Yeah. You know, that, that sort of set, that became the new template for romantic comedies, even though the rather questionable storyline of a call girl, you know, who needs some man to come along and save her. is You know, it's, uh, but but it works. You uh-huh. know, I've seen the film. I know that it works, even though when you look at it on paper, it sounds kind of repugnant. But but, but the charm of those stars and, and Gary Marshall's talent for light comedy, at least, you know, the talent that he had for a long stretch before he sort of got into these more formulaic repetitions of what he'd done before. But, uh, but certainly, you know, and even his earlier film, The Flamingo Kid, um, is, is a pretty fine comedy based on his own personal recollections. But uh, so obviously, you know, she had a, a model there in her own family and, uh, and she had this experience of being in camera on a, you know, on a, on a set for a TV show for the better part of a decade. Uh, she was also on The Odd Couple. She was a recurring character on that show with Tony Randall and Jack Klugman. So I think doing that taught her about comic timing and about character and and that sort of thing. Which she and she directed episodes of Laverne and Shirley, um, and I think uh, you know that got her primed to to move to the big time. And yeah, and I, I have a lot of fondness for Big, even though in sort of in retrospect, it is a film that is kind of creepy. You know, the sort of the boy in the man's body and uh, and having actual relations with full grown <laughs> women. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff there that that could have been icky and weird, and it actually isn't. I mean, it is if you think about it too much. But if you just go with it as a slab of entertainment, Big has a lot of charm, and Tom Hanks, of course, delivers in spades with that film. I mean, he's so good and he carries a lot of that, the fun of Big. Um, but uh, A League of Their Own 
is a wonderful story based on true story of uh, a group of women in a, there was a baseball league during the war because all the men were away. And you've got this incredible uh, cast, including with Gina Davis and Lori Petty and even Madonna uh, doing really great work. Uh, Tom Hanks, again, in a supporting role, kind of the Walter Matthau role, I <laughs> yes, guess. Yes, very much so. In that. And uh, yeah, and those films really, they really do manifest uh, a lot of, uh, of, of uh, I mean, they're they're just really quality, big budget Hollywood entertainment that you just don't see very often anymore. Yeah, I mean, you know, she was definitely swinging for the fences with those films, and and they all, you know, if you look at certainly the trilogy of Big Awakenings and A League of Their Own. I think they all, you know, ac- accomplish what she set out to do. I mean, as you mentioned, big Chris benefits from Hanks. It's hard to imagine another actor of that era pulling that off. Like, you know, I think in an email, I, I sort of jokingly suggested some other actors of that similar vintage who, you know, if you try to imagine big with them and it just, you're right, it does become creepy I think you weird. said Eric Roberts. That well, I don't be, know where uh, that came from. That would be a really bad idea. He's, he's, yeah, that, 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 that would just be wrong. But, um, you know, it, it's funny when you think about big and think about all the, mo- the brain swapping kind of films that, you know, the, the rehashes of Freaky Friday yeah, that sure. came out. You know, body swapping, brain body swapping, swapping. Brain yeah, swapping. there's it was a whole genre, and uh, we could do a whole episode about that. We probably could, but we're not going to because <laughs> most of them, most st- of them stink. Are stink. Yes, I think yes. there's Freaky Friday, and then there's the rest of them. Well, all of me, maybe. Yeah, all of could, me is could, actually pretty could fun. fit in there somewhere. But uh, but Big is uh, kind of took that idea, and you know, when it came out, it just seemed like it was yet another version of that formula and then uh but then they 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 found this innocence in it and uh, you know looked at the bigger picture of it and uh you know played down the slapstick aspect of it and more the character side of it and that's why it works and uh you know and guys like Robert Loggia and actors like that um you know really really help pull it off and uh yeah league of their own you know I, I love films about that period I love films about the home front uh Goldie Hawn's uh, Swing Shift directed by Jonathan Demi but she was the producer and I I think she had a kind of the final say on where that film went in the end there's a lot of debate about who had the final cut on that film and and I think that's a that's a fine film as well so uh, uh and, but a league of their own I think is probably the best of that bunch and uh yeah riding with car riding in cars with boys with Drew Barrymore was kind of her last feature film and it's a film that I know is fondly remembered uh, by by folks who love that film. Drew Barrymore is very good in it, and yet somehow that became uh, in two thousand one. That was kind of like the last thing she did for a long time. Then she did some TV, did some episodes of the excellent United States of Terra, and that was that was kind of it. I don't know if she decided to retire or if there were illness issues that uh, made her step away from uh, the TV and film sets. But uh, it's it's a shame she didn't make more work while she was around. But it's nice that we got what we got. <laughs> So Nicholas Rogue was one of those filmmakers that, well, I, I, I think of him when I think of the 70s and I think of the great filmmakers of the 1970s, um, you know, largely that's an American decade of, of filmmaking in my mind. I think of the, the great American films that were made, but uh, Rogue had, uh, was making films out of the UK that uh, were idiosyncratic, challenging uh, amazingly well shot, and his run uh, from, I guess, maybe performance to bad timing was pretty much like uh, some of the great, the greatest films that were made in that decade. Uh, so yeah, we're talking about performance 
uh, walkabout Don't Look Now, which we spoke about during our Supernatural Horror episode, uh, The Man Who Fell to Earth, which I have some mixed feelings about, but there it is. Uh, I know it's it's certainly uh, a remarkable film and bad timing. After that, he made Eureka, which I haven't seen. Uh, Insignificance, which I have seen, and I like Insignificance, so it's basically a filmed play um, about you know Marilyn Monroe, Joe DiMaggio, Albert Einstein, and Joe McCarthy meeting in a hotel room in New York City. Sounds like the punchline to a or a joke or something. <laughs> uh, and then some other films from the later in his career, which uh, I still I would think are worth checking out. Some of which I've seen, some I haven't. But uh, but yeah, it's those '70s films that. Uh, that people still talk about, and many of which are available uh, from Criterion. Yeah, Rogue is such an interesting guy. I mean, he was a cinematographer to start with, and uh, you know, uh, it's it's kind of unusual for cinematographers to become uh, directors, at least directors with a sustained career. Most most cinematographers usually have might have a film in them, uh, a couple. I mean, Jack Cardiff, who was the great cinematographer who worked with uh, you know with uh, I think he worked with David Lean. And um, also worked with um, Michael Powell. Uh, also made a series of films, some of which are great, some of which are not so great. Um, you know, but but uh, but it seemed it would make sense that you know someone would uh, who knows how to run a camera uh, from the inside out and knows how to light a scene would would want to become a director. It doesn't um, necessarily connect but, that they would be good with actors, but you're right. That does you can they have all the experience on the technical side, why wouldn't they want to be directors? Exactly. Well, you know, if they, if, if they have a visual sense, that's half the battle there. And the other half is casting. <laughs> so Yes, yes. You know, if you know if you know what you want visually and uh, you've got a good script and you know how to cast your parts accordingly, uh, you know, a lot of filmmakers will tell you that's that's, you know, 90% of it right there. Um and so, you know, Rogue certainly had a visual sense. I mean, it was even there uh, when you look at films he he worked on, like Fahrenheit 451 for Francois Truffaut, Mask of the Red Death for Roger Corman, um, and uh, one of my favorites uh, from that period, uh, Far From the Matting Crowd, mm-hmm. uh, the adaption of the the novel uh, for John Schlesinger, which is, the visuals are kind of the best thing about yeah, it. Yeah, I it's, agree. It is absolutely stunning to look at. It's not necessarily uh, brilliantly directed, but... You know, just having Terrence Stamp and Julie Christie stand in front of a camera on the the rolling fields of, you know, Wessex or wherever Sussex, Kent, wherever they filmed it. Uh, you know, that's you know that's 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 all you really need. <laughs> Who needs a story? Yeah, but, no, but he you're right. Those are beautiful looking films, and he brought that visual impact to his own work. Um, and he worked in the two of those examples I mentioned. He worked with rock stars, Mick Jagger. And David Bowie. Uh, now, Mick Jagger in performance. It's been a long time since I've seen it, but I know that he plays a character who seems not such a far cry from the image that we have of Mick Jagger. Well, here's the funny thing. I, I watched it this morning, actually. Okay. <laughs> you know, as I said earlier, we, we've been doing some cramming for this particular episode, and, and performance was a film I had not watched in in quite a while. And uh, I, I, I've had the uh, Mourner Archive Blu-ray of it, which is quite a beautiful restoration of the film and it's intact. Uh, you know, there's some pretty sh- shocking sensuality in the film, which, uh, you know, was even, was fairly forward at the time. Like apparently one of the labs that was developing the film destroyed some of the footage that Rogue had taken because they thought it was obscene. Um, I think, I think he'd shot some 16 millimeter footage that gets used in the film and then it wound up getting destroyed at the lab. And wow. I don't know if he had to reshoot it or what happened, but, uh, you know, or if that's a complete myth, I don't know that you know that to make it the film seem sexier than it was for publicity. But but at any rate, it's it's a good story, and uh, 
and uh, yeah, Jagger's the, the reclusive rock star, and he. Um, but but what I've read is that the character is kind of based. I mean, it's based on a book, but um, obviously it was updated to have more of a late '60s kind of vibe. That he was actually more based on Brian Jones. Oh, that's from interesting. The, because Jones either quit or got booted out of the Stones, depending on who you talk to. And then you know had this reclusive period before he eventually wound up you know found in his swimming pool um, for causes unknown. And uh, that that whole and you know Anita Pallenberg, who's in performance as Mick Jagger's character's one of his two girlfriends. Uh, she was Brian Jones' girlfriend at the time, so which gives it this whole weird um, mirror on reality kind of feel about it. But uh, but the, this kind of weird stone self indulgent uh, exile that Jones went into just prior to his death is kind of the model for what Jagger, uh, his character Turner, is doing uh, in this film, where he's you know kind of piddling about this. I won't, it's not even really a mansion; it's just a, a really nice London townhouse, I guess, and uh, working on odds and ends of things that never come together. And then, you know, into his hedonistic life waltzes this fairly dangerous gangster who's on the run from uh, his own mob uh, is trying to rub him out after he's become unreliable. And so he just needs a place to crash until he gets his fake passport together and can get out of the country. And then uh, what happens is this kind of psychedelic tripped out... uh, descent into madness where they almost exchange identities. The, the rock star becomes the hoodlum and the hoodlum becomes the rock star, so to speak. And, and um, it's, it's Rogue actually co-directed with Donald Kamel, who, who wrote the screenplay. And um, I'm not sure if uh, Kamel had a really sketchy track record. His, his career kind of ended and in, in, went down in flames. And it's, there's various stories about what happened there on the set. Like, did Rogue have to take over from Kamel to take over the direction? Um, you know, there's aspects of the film that definitely feel like Kamel's work, and then the ambiguity of it towards the end definitely feels more like Rogue. Um, so it's uh, it's it's hard to say where one guy's direction ends and the other guy uh, guys begins. But or if Kamel just decided to share credit with Rogue because his visuals are such an important part of the story. Um, but of course, it just adds to the mystery of this movie that that uh, is a fascinating uh, time capsule, uh, but it's also a pretty compelling drama. I mean, it starts out as uh, like a 60, like it starts out as like a typical 60s British gangster hoodlum story, uh, like the Cray twins, basically. Like Edward, Edward Fox is basically a one man Cray twin. Right. You know, he's just a vicious thug who goes out and, you know, he's, he's, he's working for a boss who's got this protection racket going. And then, um, you know, he, he basically takes it a step too far and his boss doesn't like that very much. And, and then he has to go into hiding. And interestingly enough, you mentioned Bowie. Uh, when Edward Fox goes on the lamb before he meets up with uh, Mick Jagger's Turner and his crew. Uh, he he dyes his hair red with just a can of red paint and some some brill cream. He just mixes them together and puts them in his hair and slicks it back, puts on some sunglasses, and he looks like David Bowie. <laughs> it's kind of weird. And, and, That's and, interesting. And in a way that David, I mean, David Bowie wasn't even known at the time they were filming this, so it just seems kind of weird that... Uh, uh, that he would look like the later David Bowie right. with the, the slick back hair and everything. Like, I almost wondered, did Bowie base his look as the Thin White Duke on Edward Fox in performance? Because, you know, at the time that this was made, um, you know, David Bowie was probably doing his space oddity thing right. when he had longer hair and before mm-hmm. he did the whole Ziggy Stardust thing. Uh, so that's an, another interesting, weird way that, that it turns in on itself. But it was certainly, uh, certainly after that film, it was, it was a big cult hit. Uh, and, you know, it was, it was popular on, uh, you know, on the kind of cult hit youth culture circuit and uh, certainly uh, allowed Rogue to continue on his own path from there. 
Yeah, and uh, he did continue on his own path. Walkabout with uh, Jenny Agutter is a, is a film, uh, or a Gooder. Actually, I'm not sure how you pronounce her. A uh, uh, she is. <laughs> yeah, she's a British actor who uh, is is uh, she plays sort of a schoolgirl in the in the film with her younger brother, who uh, are abandoned out in the outback in Australia when uh, uh, their father commits suicide, uh, has sort of a some kind of breakdown, and then they are they are having to to travel across the the open landscape um, and interact with Aboriginal characters as well in the film, and uh, it is. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know the 100% how well it's aged, but uh, I still find it a fascinating-looking film. Again, a lot of what I like about Rogue is, you know, he's a provocative filmmaker, not to a, to a fault, but he certainly has some interesting ideas he's working with, but, but it's the look of his films that stay with me. Um, and uh, that's certainly the case with The Man Who Fell to Earth, uh, which is a film, yeah, I don't know that I loved. I felt like it was a little too... Uh, it's too there's there's sort of seventies tropes in its, <laughs> yeah. its in the way it's edited, especially that kind of bugged me a little bit. But at the same time, it's wonderful to see Bowie sort of in the prime uh, of his uh, of his power, uh, playing this alien character. It's kind of tailor made for him. Yeah, it, it is a bit mannered, I suppose, in its style, um, and it, it is reminiscent of a type of film from the early seventies. There's some Altman films like Images and Three uh, Three Women that do have that kind of elliptical feeling where the timeline gets played with and the, the, the editing is, you know, sometimes you wonder if they just threw bits of film up into the air and just put them back together in the order they came down in or what have you. But, uh, and, and uh, there are films that do that very well. I mean, it's, it's not to say that some of these films aren't good. Um, then there's films that do that. Like uh, there's one called Puzzle of a Downfall Child with, with Faye Dunaway that, that uh, takes that style to the max, and it's a mess. It's a complete jumbled mess. And, and in fact, it's not even on home video, probably because why would it be? Why would you want it? <laughs> um, so it, it was definitely an influential style, for better or for worse. And uh, certainly lots of different filmmakers indulged themselves in it. And, and Rogue continued to kind of use that uh, time-shifting style, probably to better degree, better effect than a lot of them. I mean, D Don't Look Now and Bad Timing um, indulged it in what, as well. But um, I think because he was... A visual master that you know the order of the bits doesn't seem to matter so much as this kind of visual language that he establishes in each film and and not every you know and the films all have their own look to them too i mean i think some of them have kind of that 70s soft focus or whatever but but i think he was very careful to give each film its own identity and that's kind of what makes them special um but man, man who fell to earth I, I do have a fondness for it i mean it i think i i read the book it was based on which mm -hmm. is a pretty straightforward science fiction story about this guy who comes to Earth, he's an he's a human-looking alien who basically you know brings this future technology and introduces it slowly through a com company so that he can make a lot of money to save his home planet, which has run out of water or whatever. And um, and and so and so that's pretty straightforward. So he takes that uh, he takes that fairly basic storyline and really plays with it. And uh, and Bowie is perfect casting. I mean, the guy you know. If anybody was born to play an alien, I mean, he was already was playing one on stage. Yeah, that's right. Pretty much in his <laughs> uh, in his uh, stage act. So uh, it, it's kind of a, a great meeting of minds. 
And uh, I have a lot of affection for the film. I think Candy Clark is great as the woman who kind of falls for him. Uh, it's nice to see Buck Henry. Uh, yeah, in, with the, in there with as the well. glasses, the, the Coke bottle glasses. Yeah. He's, he's almost unrecognizable as a result. Yeah, and, and kind of the prescient nature of the film, the way it kind of predicts things like digital music and so on. Um, you know, the book obviously is a lot more straightforward about these inventions that he slowly doles out one by one to kind of build this fortune. He, he decides that if he, if he, Unleashed them all at once, then then something people would know something was up. Yeah. But if he just slowly, you know, one by one, kind of introduces this technology, um, you know, he can become the proto Elon Musk or mm-hmm. you know Steve Jobs or, or or whatever. So, you know, I I think watching the film now with that in mind and the way it kind of points towards future uh, technological conglomerates, uh, it's very prescient. And uh, but it, but it does still has that kind of rock and roll feel to some of it. So yeah. I, I, I certainly recommend seeing uh, seeing it. I, I, you don't have to read the book for it to make sense, but I, I think I was lucky <laughs> that I kind of had the framework in mind while I was watching it for the first time. Um, one other thing I will nod to with Mr. Rogue is uh, bad timing, which uh, is uh, it's a, it's set in Vienna. It's a it's kind of a feel bad thriller about a woman who has overdosed, uh, potentially tried to commit suicide. And she's been rushed to the hospital, and her ex-lover, played by Art Garfunkel, he's a psychologist uh, who has who's there. He's basically found her and taken to the hospital, and then uh, a an investigator shows up, played by Harvey Keitel, looking very smooth and very slick, <laughs> looking into their relationship and what was happening there. So you've got this European location with these American actors, uh, and it creates this interesting dichotomy. And again, he's jumping back and forth in the story between the relationship between uh, Garfunkel and Russell's characters and then the present, where she's fighting for her life. In fact, at one point, this is uh, something in the film that's really jumped out at me. There is a sex scene, uh, and they cut, they intersplice the sex scene with the scene of her getting a tracheotomy. And it's very vivid. It's just like, (laughs) and you can't help but feel that she is being mistreated by the men (laughs) in her life. I mean, it just, it changes the whole mood of the thing. Uh, And you can't, and you're not even sure. I mean, these people who are fighting to save her life, I, you know, are doing what they have to do. But uh, yeah, the sort of subtext here is is very sort of Freudian and very weird and uh, and very unnerving. Bad Timing is not a movie that, will make you feel good but uh the storytelling his by this point in his career I think he had some he had definitely established his style and the way he liked to tell stories and Rogue delivers in this film I think I think it's worth seeing. Yeah, I, as I recall, I remember when it came out and and it divided critics at the time I think uh you know and some people were taken back by the the sexuality in it which shouldn't have come you know if you've seen his other films it's a very vital part of his films that the sexual life of his characters was very important to him. Uh, Don't look now. Obviously, you know it's it's a crucial part of that film as well as performance and Man Who Fell to Earth, and uh, you know it wasn't like an '80s thriller where oh we need to insert a, a sex scene with some softcore saxophone going on here. It's like well, you know these are full-blooded characters who ha- have sexual lives as well as whatever lives the plot determines, and uh, and you know he's very conscious of that. And and Bertolucci too, which we'll probably talk about in the next segment. Um, but that's kind of, I mean, after that, after bad timing, uh, it kind of goes off the rails a little bit. You know, uh, he made uh, films that that weren't as popular, mm-hmm. that uh, you know, did not please his investors very much. It seemed it seemed like that one film seemed to be the 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 axle for a very different later phase in his career. Um, you know, I, I remember seeing Track Twenty Nine and finding it, you know, fairly 
fairly incomprehensible. And, and I actually saw one of his last, well, I think it was his last theatrical feature, something called Puffball, about um, uh, a female architect who becomes pregnant and becomes this sort of magnet for ire of people in the small, you know, she's living on a, working on a farm in a small village and somehow draws the ire of the locals kind of thing. But it's, there's a mystical element to it that I didn't think fully came together. And as a film, I mean, I think, I mean, it, I think it played the Atlantic Film Festival. In okay. fact, I think that's where I saw it. And, uh, but I don't think it had much, of, if any, of a release. And I don't, you know, I've certainly never seen a home video copy. I'm sure it exists, but it's it's, it's something that kind of, well, like a puffball. It just kind of went poof, and then it was uh, it was gone. So, um, uh, and uh, it had some great I- great ideas and, and some good performances in it. And you know, if you do come across it, it might be worth seeing. But it it, it was sort of en- emblematic of kind of where his career went in the later part of it. Um, the one standout film from those later years, though, is um, uh, the Witches. Oh yeah, with, with uh, uh, Angelica, Angelica Houston. Houston sure, uh, and it's it's this odd film out in those later years because it was a it was actually a you know a commercial and critical hit based on a Roald Dahl uh, book for kids and it was you know essentially a, a kids movie but it had the dark edge of a Roald Dahl uh, story and it's it was pretty faithful to the tone of uh, of Dahl's work uh, in a way that uh, you know maybe the original Gene Wilder uh, Willy Wonka is as well, and maybe not so much some of the other ones like Matilda and James and the Giant Peach. Oh, right. I like James and the Giant Peach, the the Tim Burton adaptation with the with the stop motion animation. But uh, but the witches uh, seems to get Dolls' somewhat nasty tone just right, which of course you can't really do in a kids movie these days. Like it, it seemed like uh, Rogue was pretty determined to to get Doll right. I mean, you know, Dolls a I'll use the word problematic uh, character <laughs> as it is, but uh, um, but you know his books certainly remain timeless, and and this is one story that I felt had the right tone, and and uh, and uh, and certainly uh, Rogue's visual uh, panache comes into play as well in a big way. In our last uh, segment on this look back at prominent filmmakers that we lost just in the last uh, couple of months of, of 2018. Uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the work of uh, Bernardo Bertolucci, the great Italian filmmaker who uh, has, a, has a litany of, of films, uh, some of which uh, remain masterpieces, some of which uh, have not aged so well, and others which are kind of reviled uh, due to, uh, um, well, see, a, a bit of rewriting of history, as it were. And, um, you know, films like Certainly, uh, The Last Emperor was a, a big sensation of the year it came out, a big-scale epic, the kind of which they didn't really make anymore. But one not, one but best picture that year. The one best picture, and yeah. not a film that people talk about or talk about terribly fondly no, these days. No, it's true. It's true. Um, of course, he has... Uh, uh, there's some controversy recently around uh, before he died uh, about uh, Last Tango in Paris and the way the Maria Schneider or Scheider was uh, was was treated uh, on set by the director and by Marlon Brando. Uh, this is a controversy that has really soured a lot of people, I think, on Bertolucci's work because you know if that's the way he was treating his actors, uh, his female actors on set, then you got to wonder how he might have treated them in other films. Uh, and you know he defended himself vociferously about about what <laughs> well, went yes. on there but at the same time if he was you know manipulating his actors in in a situation where they're in a sex scene and there was and it was violent i mean it's hard to to think that that was that was above board or at all acceptable um you know 
it's yeah, it's 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 certainly problematic, and I, I haven't been able to rewatch that film since. Yeah, it, it's I mean because the, that scene kind of colors the whole film as enough as it is. It did at the time it came out, and that became almost a, a running joke about that film uh, in the years that followed. Even you know, I, I even remember a joke. You know, uh, I think Brando or um, John Belushi doing Brando on Saturday Night Live, making a reference to it. In a, in a skit, uh, you know, on a prime, well, not prime time, but on a network comedy show. And so, and that's, you know, it's, it's the one thing the film's remembered for. It's, it's really a film about grief and loss and that sort of thing. But that, that particular instant in the film uh, kind of colored everybody's uh, interpretation of it. And then learning the background of, of, of how uh, Scheider was mistreated. Uh, and it really is no other way to look at it. Uh, you know, it was, it was wrong what happened to her. And uh, that is not how you get art no. out of your uh, collaborators. Yeah, indeed, indeed. And it's a shame, especially when you think of uh, his body of work where he he has a great body of work. And I think the things about his films that I enjoy are the fact that he was not coy about eroticism and sensuality. He really, uh, he, 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 uh, he was, his stories and his characters are fully fledged human beings with a, a lot of, of that aspect of their lives on screen. Um, and uh, he also, uh, you know, had incredible collaborators behind the camera, cinematographers, Vittorio Storaro shot a lot of his films and they are so beautiful to look yeah. at. The one I want to talk about in a little bit is A Sheltering Sky, which is a, my favorite of his works probably uh, and is incredible to look at. But there are still films of his that I haven't seen. I'd really like to see Luna, um, which is apparently a really interesting, sort of a lost film from his late 70s. I haven't seen The Spider's Stratagem from the Borges story, which I am also interested in seeing. Now, you've seen The Conformist. That's also one that remains unseen by me. Oh, The Conformist is terrific. I mean, The Conformist is the film that really made his career. Um, I actually, his first film, his first feature of note is one, uh, it's known in English as The Grim Reaper. Uh, it's It's kind of a, police procedural, you know, murder story, about him, but with, with that kind of Italian neorealist feel about it that uh, he made in 1962 from a story by uh, Pasolini, another great Italian filmmaker. And, uh, of course, they were friends and collaborators. Um, and that, but, but it wasn't... Uh, it, it's a pretty good film. I mean, for a, for a debut feature, um, it feels pretty assured and it tells a pretty compelling tale. Uh, and then... Eight years, he, he does work, you know, in TV and documentaries and stuff. And then in 1970, out comes The Conformist, uh, based on a novel about a, a, a character in uh, fascist Italy who's not really a fascist, but he kind of goes along to get along in, in the whole in the realm and the Mussolini uh, regime. And, um, you know, he basically has to sell his soul in the process. And uh, um, the great uh, Jean-Louis Tritagnon, uh, plays uh, the conformist of the title. He, um, you know, he's working in kind of the foreign service slash secret service uh, under Mussolini, and he gets uh, assigned uh, an assassination uh, uh, duty. Um, he's going on his honeymoon to Paris with his new bride. And, well, while you're in Paris, could you assassinate this radical Italian professor uh, who's been, you know, railing against the Mussolini regime? So he's not even in Italy. It's, it's an Italian who's gone to Paris, basically in exile, um, but is still kind of um, preaching against, uh, I don't think he's quite a communist. I think maybe he's more democratic uh, socialist or whatever you want to call it. But uh, but anyway, he's, he's, he's a respected voice and very vociferous and, and uh, 
uh, Trudignan is, uh, his character is assigned to, to basically rub him out. But what he doesn't count on is, um, you know, the, the guy that he's been sent to kill is actually his old college professor and, uh, they kind of rekindle their friendship, but he also develops a thing for the professor's young wife, um, who he finds way more attractive than his own, you know, very, you know, very vivacious and very attractive new young wife, but uh, the professor's wife was, you know, more of a woman of the world, more of an intellectual, and, uh, you know, more of a, a sensualist, for lack of a better word. Um, so he's very conflicted about that. And um, so most of the film is spent with him and his wife getting closer to the, the professor and his wife, all the while knowing that he's got this job to do. And uh, that's kind of the the, the conflict and, and uh, climax we're presented with. But the film isn't remembered so much for its story, although it's a great great storyline, but uh, it's remembered more for its uh, overwhelming visual style. The, 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 every single shot looks like a painting. It's, he and Storaro went all out. Uh, you know, the, there's rarely a shot that doesn't look just exquisitely composed and, and thought out beforehand from the way, like, you know, when we first meet his fiance uh, before they get married and, you know, she's got this striped dress that matches the shadows that the Venetian blinds throw onto the wall behind her and you know, and she in this exquisite kind of art decoy apartment, and you know the 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 gigantic cavernous offices of the Mussolini fascist regime. Uh, you know, they they're um, they just kind of uh, become these overwhelming spaces that these characters are are shrunken in, and and it's uh, it's it's very influential. Uh, it's it's had its influence on everything from The Godfather right up to Miller's Crossing. So uh, highly recommended. Uh, recently restored on Blu-ray. All right, very good. Well, I, I my list is long, as I said, when it well, comes yeah, to... yeah, and we're Bert, very Bert short Lynch. on time. And we're short on time. I want to say that the film of his that has stayed with me for the longest and still I still lo- like the most is A Sheltering Sky. It's not the one that is most adored by critics particularly, but I, I discovered it first. I watched on the big screen in London. I was held over there for like... 48 hours and decided to go see a feature film in Leicester Square and it happened to be playing and I recognized it was uh, it was a good one uh, because of the critics had actually well in London they seemed to be flattering of it and I I knew his last film was the last emperor I'm gonna I'm gonna go see this and uh, it's from the Paul Bowles novel and it stars um, winger uh, Deborah winger and John Malkovich as Kit and Port Moresby uh, a couple American New Yorkers who are very wealthy and kind of idle and not entirely happy in their relationship. They love each other, but they can't quite figure out their problems. And what they've decided to do is travel through North Africa after the war. And, um, you know, and they, as they go along, they're both not entirely, um, uh, faithful to one another. (laughs) And, uh, you know, and they're just trying to figure out their stuff. And then Malkovich's port, it takes ill, and and what happens after that to Kit is uh, is kind of this whole transformative experience. Uh, uh, Malkovich and uh, Winger are both, you know, powerful uh, actors. They're very sort of moody, and and uh, you get the sense of uh, there's there's definitely the method in them, and I think it suits the parts. It suits the film, but it's the look of that film that is astonishing north africa has never looked more amazing on film and uh and it has this hypnotic quality um i remember watching it that first time and feeling like uh, ma- majorly jet lagged and sleep deprived but really <laughs> just kind of lost in it never for a moment did i feel like i was going to fall asleep i was just like this is just i'm i've been carried away uh and uh it is 
Yeah, I I, I don't think it's available on Blu-ray, but I don't uh, think so either. I have it on DVD, and it's a gorgeous film to look at. It's funny the opening sequence, the opening um, uh, credits are over stock footage of New York City in the 40s. And so you get this very like, oh, are we going to watch an urban film? And then, of course, they never are in New York City. <laughs> they are, we, we first see our actors, our performers, like on the uh, you know, Tangier or something uh, in Morocco where they shot uh, at the docks, you know, uh, waiting to take their, their way into the, into the, into the Sahara. Uh, and they shot in multiple places around North Africa, apparently. And uh, yeah, it's really worth checking out. Yeah, I haven't seen it since catching it on Laserdisc in the mid-90s. So my, my memories are all very vague and, and, and smoky and sandy. Um, but, uh, but I do remember it as, as a very central experience and, and very, a very enveloping one. And yeah, I would buy a Blu-ray of that in a heartbeat. Yeah, for sure. I hope they release one. Um, and I should say as well that in more recent years, he had some, some I think, quite uh, impressive films like uh, I, I'm a, I've got a soft spot for t- Stealing Beauty. Um, but uh, really, I think The Dreamers is actually maybe a better film. And it's, it, it brought uh, Ava Green to prominence uh, early in her career. And uh, the, I'm less fond of Michael Pitt, but he's in it as well. <laughs> yes. And uh, yeah, and it's about young, uh, sort of a, a, a young, it's sort of a love triangle, a, a, you know, a close uh, sibling pair, brother and sister, and then this uh, American student who visits them in Paris in the late 60s during the student uprising and and that becomes the backdrop to this sort of like sensual uh, love story uh, and it's uh yeah it's quite potent and 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 lovely and and uh yeah uh it is it's a shame actually that uh, Bertolucci has this kind of like you know this this uh, is uh, much of his work still holds up really well. It's a shame that that this controversy now is is kind of attached to his name. But you know, as is with many artists, uh, filmmakers from that era, uh, nothing is quite stra- on the straight and narrow. You you got to take it all in stride. You got to consider the artist with the art these days. Well, uh, and there's also his major is you know what he considered his life's work was his major epic, 1900, right, which is a five hour epic about the the political turmoil in the first half of the 19th century in Italy. Uh, and that's a film, there's a lot in that film that gets people upset. Um, you know, I think Donald Sutherland kills a cat on camera and there's, you know, that's that's something that's still hard to watch um, right. uh, to, to this day. And uh, the, there's a lot of shocking sex and violence in that film that Paramount had a real problem actually putting that out uh, when they had their hands on it. They I've got, only seen part of it, and I remember it being kind of a slog. Uh, it's I, a bit I, of a know, slog. And yeah. there's is is it is some of the the American actors dubbed, or are they actually speaking Italian? Well, it's there. Are, there's an Italian soundtrack, but then you get people like Robert De Niro and uh, and Gerard Depardieu dubbed by Italian actors. Uh-huh. Really, the English soundtrack, even though, is the only way to get people like uh, like Sterling Hayden and uh, Burt Lancaster and De Niro. Uh, and Sutherland, it's their own voices, but um, but the other actors that you know don't speak English are dubbed by a, you know other English actors probably working in Rome who right. did that for a living. So there's no perfect version of the film, but the Blu-ray that is out is the full-length version, and it's cut up into two parts. Um, just because it's, you know, the first part is like two hours and forty-five minutes, and that's just the first half of it. But uh, you know, f- for a look at uh, the rise of communism and, and, and fascism and how one overcomes the other in Italy, uh, you know, between 1900 and 1945, it's, it's pretty compelling if you want to put in the hours.
wraps up our look at uh, the careers, crammed though it may be, of, uh, of William Goldman, Nicholas Rogue, Bernardo Bertolucci, and Penny Marshall that we uh, managed to cram into one hour of programming today. Uh, thanks for sticking with us and making it all the way to the end. I'm Stephen Cook, and uh, you can find me on Twitter at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. I'm Karsten Knox, and uh, my Twitter handle is uh, is named after my blog, which is Flaw in the Iris. And actually, Lens Mirrors also has a Twitter handle. And a Facebook page that uh, could probably do with some updating. But uh, <laughs> if, feel free to go by there and drop a comment or, or what have you. And, uh, of course, we have a Patreon if you want to support uh, the show in any way, shape, or form. And, as always, thanks to the folks at uh, Village Sound and CKDU for helping this all come together. Hope you have a happy holiday, and we'll see you in 2019. Lends Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Check out all of their amazing music and so much more at gypsophilia.org. Send feedback to Lends Me Your Ears podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.